the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, everybody. I am Lee Johnson, and I'm joined with my co-hosts, Jason Reed and Rick Lee. Today, we are talking about Casablanca. This is going to be an ongoing series here on Hotel Bar Sessions, where every now and then, we'll have a HBS Goes to the Movies episode, where we pick one of our favorite films and try to dig out what might be philosophically interesting about it. And so today's film is one of the greatest of all the films and all the towns and all the world. We had to pick Casablanca. <laughs> But let's go around the table, get everybody's drink orders and rants or raves. Rick, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about today? Today, I'm just going to have a beer. I'd like a lager or a pilsner, whatever is locally brewed. I'm a big fan of Dovetail myself, Dovetail Brewery Call Us, but something light and breezy. Today, I am raving about my two nephews. At the beginning of October was the Chicago Marathon, and my nephew Nick Zolfo and his brother Blake Zolfo, a former guest on our podcast, ran the marathon, and some members of my family and I cheered him on, cheered other runners on in the marathon. It was really exciting, and I'm really proud of the times they both finished with. You guys are fantastic, and I love you. Congratulations, guys. All right, Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, in honor of all the gin joints in all the world, I'm going to have a gin and tonic. <laughs> and this week I am raving about Halloween. <laughs> Halloween actually reminds me of what it feels like to be a kid. Whereas Christmas always just reminds me of the fact that I'm not a kid anymore. <laughs> I, like the fact that kids enjoy Christmas, but Halloween brings out the kid in me. How did Halloween become so big? Yeah. It's happened in our lifetime, and I've never heard a really good explanation. When I was a kid, to get Halloween decorations, you have to go to a special store. Now, go to Home Depot. Yeah. They're selling you skeletons as you walk in. It's become a huge <laughs> thing, and I don't really quite understand why everyone lets their inner goth out in October. <laughs> So, Lee, what are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have a beer as well today. I don't really care what it is. Just give me a beer. <laughs> and today I'm actually ranting about the lack of interspecies communication in my household. <laughs> just in your household. <laughs> <laughs> So unfortunately, when my wife and I adopted our new dog, Rufus, from the pound, he was heartworm positive. And if you've ever had a dog that's had heartworms, this is a long process. It takes like mm. three months to go through the whole treatment. So he was on antibiotics for a month. And today he goes in for his first heartworm shot. And he's going to have to basically be inactive for the next eight weeks. Oh. going to have to keep him on a leash. He's probably going to have to spend a lot of time in his kennel. And the horrible thing about this is that I can't explain to him why this is happening, oh, that this is. is actually for his own good. And it just breaks my heart to think that we're going to have to keep him from doing a lot of the things that he loves over the next few weeks for the simple reason that we can't speak dog. Yes. So, Rick. Is Rick. So Rick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, first of all, welcome to my Cafe Americano. <laughs> so Casablanca obviously makes it on so many lists of the best movies of all time. I find it interesting that it was shot in 1942, which is just the year after the U.S. entered the Second World War, and mm. yet it's steeped in many of the intrigues and problems of the Second World War. I also like it because it's a part caper movie, it's part mm -hmm. romance, it's partly a war flick, it's partly a resistance flick. And these are woven together in a plot that I will admit the first time I saw it, I didn't quite follow exactly what happened and why. It is beautifully shot. Many of the characters are phenomenally gorgeous. And it's given us some of the most memorable lines of all movie dumb. And on top of all of that, relevant to us, 
The whole thing takes place almost exclusively in a bar. (laughs) I'd like to point out that the screenwriters, Julius and Philip Epstein, twin brothers, by the way, were swept up in the Red Scare because Warner of the Warner Brothers gave their name to the House Un-American Activities Committee. They never testified, but they had a questionnaire they had to fill out that asked them, do they belong to any subversive organizations? And their answer was, yes, Warner Brothers. (laughs) (laughs) Zing. <laughs> so the film is obviously anti-fascist. It's obviously pro-resistance. It has a really, I think, complex depiction of its one protagonist who's a woman, Ilza Lund, played by the gorgeous Ingrid Bergman. And it also has, from my perspective, a fraught portrayal of a relationship between Rick and Sam, who is black. Rick is white. So this movie has complex history, complex politics, complex social relations, and it's taking place in a bar. It's just like hotel bar sessions. taught at Penn State, I participated in this film group, and one of the people was in the film studies program. And whenever he would choose a film to discuss, he would always start by addressing the question, why do I show this film? So let me start there and let me throw it to you. Jason, why would you show this film? Why are you talking about this film? The first thing I always try to do with a film like this is get past we already mentioned that it's supposed to be one of the best films. It's hard to watch something like this with fresh eyes. Like, I don't mm. want to watch it as a best film because I feel like that's just an empty praise. But beyond that, I think one of the things that I find most interesting about the film is it is a film about, well, two things. One, a character making a change and a decision, transforming his attitude towards the world, right? Who repeatedly throughout the film says, I don't stick my neck out for anybody who is identified as formerly being a very engaged person in the world. He fought the fascists in Spain, but he's since retired to this little corner of the world, and all he does is just mind his own business and keep his bar running. And over the course of the film, he decides to act. And of course, we never quite see that. Right? The thing about film is that we're not given anyone's interior monologue or their own decisions. But what we see instead is the way that he performs both his world weariness and his pain. And we see the transformation, but it's the transformation is caught up with almost him feigning the person that up until that point, we believed he was. He feigns yeah. his own cynicism at some point in the film. And I didn't think about it until you just said it, but the feigning is central to him pulling off what he wants to pull off in the end. And I never realized that until you just said that. Lee, what about you? Why do you watch this film? Why are we talking about it? So for many years, I did actually teach a philosophy and film class. I still bring it back every now and then. And this was one of the films that I always included in it. My film class was organized topically. So we would have a topic each week and that would match a film with it. And I always put this on the week where the topic was love. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I chose this film is because people come into this film thinking that it's just a love story. It's just a romance. And it is a love story, but it's love in many, many, many flavors, not just romantic Mm -hmm. love. There's a depiction of a very deep kind of filial love, friendship love. There's a depiction of a love for a cause, for an idea, for a people, for a future, for a world. And then there's also just the normal romance, heartbreak, love. This is one of those movies that gives us a real analysis of the many ways in which what we love and who we love, as well as what loves us and doesn't love us back, (laughs) motivates so many of our actions and developments of our own character. What about you, Rick? I've loved this movie ever since I first saw it, and I'm not sure why I loved it then, and the reasons I love it change, I think, over time. Right now, one of the things that really, I think, is important about this film is that it's set in a colonial setting, so it's set in a French colony. It really does show why a war that took place mostly in Europe and in the Pacific is labeled a world war. Mm. Because through colonization, that war really did bring the entire world into it. The colonial setting, I think, is really important. 
Also, the scene in which the Nazi soldiers are singing some kind of patriotic song, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the patrons of the bar interrupt that with Le Marcier is a moment that, like, I'm just talking about it and I have goosebumps. Um, I was just about to say it still gives me chills <laughs> every single time I see it. That celebration of resistance, it still gets me. It really just still gets me. And those are overt acts. And then, as I think both of you were talking about, there are these internal, personal acts of resistance in relation to the larger resistance movement that I think the film brings together really well. You know, this was the first time I watched this film and thought, this is a film about refugees. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's always been about refugees. Yeah. But now the refugee crisis is such a part of our regular daily political discourse that it really stood out to me this time. At the time, apparently, everyone watching this movie knew that many of the actors in the movie were themselves refugees. And I understand that the audience was quite moved by the fact that this is a movie about refugees. The artists involved in it are also themselves refugees. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. And it's interesting that the MacGuffin of the whole film, the letters, mm-hmm. right, the letters that can guarantee you passage, which apparently are entirely a fiction in the world of the film, where there are no special letters that are signed by Charles de Gaulle <laughs> himself that even the Nazis have to acknowledge. But it's interesting that <laughs> the letters are kind of this like fantasy thing of the idea of an international order that would address and welcome refugee status, right? If the idea is you get these letters and it doesn't matter where you're from and who would try to prevent you from leaving or where you want to go. Apparently, you can go anywhere. The letters are this magic ticket of resolving the refugee problem, kind of the fantasy object that the entire film is structured around. Well, and I love the idea that this world order is something that, of course, even the Nazis would abide by the international law of refugees. The refugee question is interesting because – There are a lot of side conversations in the movie about people who can't get out. They're going to be stuck there. One guy says, you know, I'm going to die here in Casablanca. And yet Casablanca is presented partly because of this refugee issue, but also in general as an incredibly cosmopolitan location at the Mm -hmm. time. Like there are Germans, people from Eastern Europe, there are Africans, there are people from Spain and Italy and so on. And it's presented as an incredibly cosmopolitan place in the midst of this refugee crisis, I think is what we could call it. It's also the case that everyone in the film respects why the refugees are refugees, including the Nazis. And that's something that we absolutely don't see today. It's still the case that many of the refugees who exist in the world today, who are not climate refugees, are fleeing a political order in their home states that they either ideologically oppose or oppose because it brings tremendous existential threat to them and their families. But we don't have that as a part of our discourse, that these are legitimate reasons that you have to respect that made the refugee the refugee. So you're saying Ron DeSantis wouldn't honor the letters of transit? That is exactly what I'm saying. I do not think that he would. But I do think that that connects to the point that Rick is making about the portrayal of Casablanca that we get, that it's so cosmopolitan. It is portrayed that way as not just a place where refugees are harboring. It's not a border town, but it's a cosmopolitan place. It's a place where refugees are welcomed. That's a part of this transnational movement that's happening in which all the people have very good reasons to be moving in the directions that they're moving. And not to say it's all unicorns pooping rainbows, (laughs) with this cosmopolitan refugee context also comes the criminal underside of that. So there are lots of pickpockets and swindlers and people trying to cheat the refugees out of their money. That economic relation follows along these waves of refugees and follows along this cosmopolitan context. I'm shocked, shocked to hear that there's gambling in this establishment. (laughs) I'm shocked to have to say the line played again, Sam, does not occur in the movie. 
Yeah. Not, right. The film has several famous lines, but the one never uttered as such, but it's often associated with the film. Yeah. Back to the criminal part, one of my favorite lines is round up the usual suspects. Mm. Yeah. I, I like the yeah. idea that somehow Casablanca has these people who just hang out. They're the usual suspects. They seem to always be getting round up repeatedly. It's almost <laughs> like a job description. You know? What are you doing, Casablanca? I'm one of the usual suspects. <laughs> And there's also that great scene with the pickpocket where he's warning two people. I think they're British. By the way, that couple seems like they're there on vacation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They and like and I'm yes. thinking to myself, like, it's the middle of the war and you come to Casablanca on vacation. They're British, so maybe the answer is, yeah, you do. But the pickpocket is warning them, you have to be careful. There are vultures, vultures everywhere, as <laughs> yeah. he's picking his pocket. Yeah. Although the tourists remind me of another thing I think is interesting about the film in terms of its cosmopolitan aspect. It's a cosmopolitan world in which America is referenced as sleeping. Right? There's the line where Rick says to Sam, it's December 1941. He doesn't say the time. He says, I wonder what they're doing in New York right now. They're probably sleeping. They're probably mm. sleeping all over America. And it's right. interesting that that line is associated with December. And I guess the date December shows up and Rick signs some kind of voucher or something. The film is clearly set December 1941. And there is a sense that although Casablanca is this cosmopolitan place where all of Europe is displaced, that America, which is mainly shown through Rick, is sitting this moment out up until the film begins. And suddenly mm -hmm. America is going to be drawn into this world order or this conflict. Rick personifies that, right? He's sitting out right. the conflict at the beginning of the movie. And it's only through the movie that he then joins the conflict. Right. And Rick, we know almost nothing about why he's in Casablanca. Except Major Strasser indicates he can't go back to the U.S. Right. And right. I could only think of two reasons why he wouldn't be allowed to return to the U.S. One would be because he would be imprisoned for some crime he committed. And the other is that he's a communist. Hmm. The person of Rick personifies so many things that are involved in the conflict of World War II. And even those events that led up to World War II. Jason, you mentioned he fought in the Spanish Civil War. He fought against the fascists there. And there are a couple of other things that are mentioned about his activities, which is one reason he has to flee Paris, where he was living when the Nazis invaded France, because Sam says they're going to round you up and you're going to be in big trouble. And so he has to flee Paris. So there is the sense that he's been a resistance fighter throughout these various conflicts stemming from this world order that we've been talking about. And yet, as the film opens, he seems weary of it all. He seems mm. really tired of it. And at least on my reading, I don't know what you all think, I think that's because of what happened between him and Ilza in Paris, yeah. that his heart was shattered. And it was on the basis of that shattering of his heart that he withdraws from the geopolitical conflicts and local resistance movements and so on. Yeah, there's that really great exchange between Rick and Ilsa where she says something like, I didn't count the days. And you know, Rick says, well, I did. I counted every one of them, but I mostly remember the last one. The yeah. wow finish. He says something like, there's a guy standing on a platform in the rain with a weird look on his face because his insides have been kicked out. Yeah. So I agree with you, Rick, that Rick, you, Rick, <laughs> I agree with you, Rick, uh, our Rick, that that heartbreak with Ilsa and in particular, the fact that it was so confusing to him that he didn't know why mm -hmm. she didn't show up on the train, that that is something that he never got over. Mm -hmm. This goes back to your initial point, Lee, about the various forms of love, which bring along with them various forms of loyalty. Many of the main characters are extremely loyal to a cause, to a person. And so the reason why he's all confused is because Victor, her husband, asked her not to tell anyone that they were married because he was afraid that she would get punished or rounded up or killed. And so she's loyal to him. He's loyal to her. And it's because of that loyalty and also a weird loyalty to Rick that she won't tell him why she can't leave with him. Yeah. And then from there on, his heart is broken and he withdraws from the world. 
Hey listeners, we've got three quick asks from your hosts here at Hotel Bar Sessions. First, if you haven't done so already, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast on whatever platform that you listen to podcasts. Second, hop on over to Twitter and make sure that you followed Hotel Bar Podcast there. We're at Hotel Bar Podcast, and you can find the Twitter handles of all three co-hosts in the bio there. And third, and probably most importantly, we would really appreciate it if you could recommend us to your friends and share our podcast posts on your social media. Now, back to the conversation. Baina, who does show up on the train platform and leave with Rick, Sam does. And we need to talk about Sam. If this were any other film, Sam would be an extra. But Sam is so central to all of the relationships that Rick has and Rick tries to avoid. And in many ways, his piano playing, so Sam is the piano player at the bar, Sam's piano playing tells the story that Jason said earlier we don't get, which is this internal monologues of the characters. So what do we think about this relationship between Sam and Rick? I said at the beginning that I find it fraught in some places. The relationship seems to go both ways because when Signor Ferrari comes into Rick's and says that he wants to hire Sam away from Rick's cafe, Rick doesn't say no. He says, why don't you go ask Sam? So they go over and ask Sam, and he's like, no, I'm happy just where I am. And Rick says to Sam, he'll double your salary. And Sam says, I don't have time to spend the money I make here. And so Rick is obviously also protective of Sam, cherishes him, and really does, I think, understand the role that Sam plays in his life of saving him from his worst self. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the relationship is marked by Sam always addressing Rick as Mr. Richard at a hierarchy there. And also the fact that Sam disappears after the last scene when Rick is drinking his sorrows, right, after Elsa shows up to the cafe. That's the last time you really see Sam. His fate in all of this, as the relationship switches from Rick and Sam to Rick and Louie, his beautiful friendship is occluded by the new beautiful friendship of the new Rick. And there's a certain way in which Sam is the most opaque of all the characters in a film in which a lot of people are trying to be very opaque about their true intentions, their true allegiances. Because even that scene you just mentioned, right, in some sense, Sam doesn't really mention, I'm not leaving because Rick is my friend. He just says oh, I don't even have time to spend the money I make here, right? He conceals perhaps the real reason he might stay there and his loyalty to Rick around this question of money. But in some sense, Sam is made to be very unreadable, except for, as Lee said, through his piano playing. He expresses what's going on with him through the music, which makes him a more central character, as Lee said as well. Like, he's not an extra... He gets a lot of screen time, but he almost pervades the film more through the music he plays than through the actual dialogues, interactions he has with characters. There is one other scene where Sam refuses to leave Rick, and that's when Rick is drinking his sorrows away late at night after the bar is closed, hoping that Ilsa comes back. And he tells Sam repeatedly, just go home, just go home. And Sam's like, no, I'm not going to go home. And then Sam tries to convince Rick to drive all night. They'll get drunk. They'll go somewhere else. Rick again says no. And Sam says, well, I'll just stay here with you until Ilsa comes, until Ilsa shows up. And then Sam leaves. I do think that in many ways that the character of Sam is meant to be the thing that holds Rick and Ilsa together until they can get back to being honest with one another Mm. again. Because as Rick and Ilsa's relationship stops being a mystery, stops just being a heartbreak, and starts being an actual relationship again, Sam is really unnecessary. Mm. That glue is unnecessary. As proof of that, in all of those scenes in the flashback where Rick is back in Paris and Rick and Ilsa meet, and in my mind, it's pretty clear they got busy in (laughs) Paris as well. They definitely did that. If they did that, in all of those scenes, Sam is ever-present. In the background, sometimes he's framed in between the two of them, so they're Mm -hmm. facing one another, and he's right in the middle. And so he really does seem central to their relationship or the intermediary that makes their relationship work. Mm -hmm. He also brings the note uh, to Rick, again, as an intermediary. And back to the famous line that's never uttered, what Rick actually says to Sam is, you played it for her you can play it for me, right? Referring to the song Time Goes By, their song, the song has been forbidden to be played in Rick's cafe because of the associations, because of the painful memory. But that really shows 
Sam is the mediator between the two of them, that the song, which is the painful memory, well, a lot of the film, I think, is about how that memory is transformed. Really what happens, maybe I'm getting a little too far ahead, spoiler alert, but what happens to change Rick is when he understands why Ilsa left, was not at the right. train yeah. platform, when he understands the necessity of it, that she had to do what she did, he's able to understand that moment in his life that's the painful memory. He's able to understand it differently and able to suddenly break himself from dwelling on it and transform it into something he can act again. I think it is a film about a kind of ethical transformation, but it's an ethical transformation that I understand to be about necessity more than freedom. Rick mm. understands that Ilsa had to do what she did in all the different mm. ways, why she didn't tell mm. him about Victor and why she eventually had to leave to go be with Victor. He understands the necessity, and that helps him act in the way in which he thinks he has to act in terms of aligning himself with the resistance. It's not really an ethics of, oh, I can do anything. It's really an ethics of like, this is the thing I have to do. And the more I can recognize that this is the thing I have to do, the more I will be able to act in the world. And that conversation where he comes to learn that necessity under which she was operating, he begins the conversation by assuming she was already with Victor and either had an affair with him or had an affair with Victor. Mm -hmm. In one way or another, he enters that conversation thinking she's a floozy. <laughs> did you say floozy? I did. <laughs> <laughs> to use the parlance of the times. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, he even says, like, were there others? I mean, he even goes so right. far as to say, like, hey, how many men are there? You know, it's pretty damn. How, how floozy are you, are floozy? You? <laughs> On a floozy scale. <laughs> And look, just to be clear, not every fast-talking dame with great gams is a floozy. Only the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> so he enters that thinking, you made these choices and they were all immoral and the bad choices. And through that conversation, he comes to understand this necessity under which she was operating. And I really like that for two deeply philosophical reasons. One is, this is not a direct quote, but one thing one takes away from Spinoza is nobody argues with necessity. Mm -hmm. right. So necessity is its own reason. Mm -hmm. So if Rick can understand that she was doing these things out of necessity and not out of freedom, then, okay, now I can understand this. But it's in acting out of necessity that I think Rick's love for her is transformed from a romantic eros kind of love to something more like philia or maybe even caritas, a different mm. kind of love. And really, all of his actions from then on are still made out of love, but now a different kind of love, a love that has been transformed into a different kind. Yeah, I like that you brought up Spinoza because our hatred or love of something is stronger and we see it as free than as necessary, right? That to some extent, right. the transformation is that Rick understands that Ilsa had to do what she had to do and he can't be mad at her anymore. One of the other famous lines, and we got to hit them all, right? I mean, I feel like we got to hit all the famous lines. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> is we'll always have Paris. Right. And I think that that's also a transformation of the memory. The memory that once haunted Rick, the heartbreak, is now transformed into this memory he can hold on to. And you get the impression as the film ends, you know, he's going to join the resistance or he's going to have a rough life fighting the Nazis. But this memory will turn into something that used to haunt him and torment him to the thing that sort of sustains him. Which I think is very interesting to me in the film, this whole idea of to be sustained by a memory, right? Which is very much a kind of war sort of idea because people in wars fight and they travel to far off countries and they have to hold on to memories of their lives before to keep them going. The idea of being sustained with a memory is one of the things the film addresses and I think touches into the way in which it is strangely a proto-war film, even though it's not a war film at the same right. time. If I could jump in here, because I really like this thread that you guys are pulling through the interpretation of these scenes, namely that ultimately what we're seeing is that this is not really about freedom, that it's primarily about necessity. But if I could push back, it does seem to me that if that is the case, if that's how we're going to read the film then what we have to learn by the end of the film is exactly what Rick learned, which is that 
the problems of three little people don't matter a hill of beans in this crazy world, right? And that ultimately, this was never about some transformation in Rick or Ilsa or Victor or anyone else or Sam or any of their relationships. All of those are really just little problems of little people in a crazy world where the real story is fascism mm-hmm. and the resistance. Mm-hmm. I don't want to like rehash the freedom versus determinism debate here. <laughs> but th- if I make a choice, for example, I love Victor, then there is a way in which that choice itself necessitates a series of choices that come after that. And so it's not as if Ilza is completely determined for all eternity from the perspective of the movie. From the perspective of Spinoza, she is, but from the perspective of the movie, she may not be, but there still is a certain necessity there. If Rick stands in for the United States, then it's not about his transformation. It's about the transformation of the United States. Maybe America should wake up. Mm. Maybe it's time that America join the fight like Rick is going to. And it's certainly not lost on anyone at the time that he's walking away with someone from France at the moment that the United States is walking into France to join the Second World War. That's right. And of course, the moment of the heartbreak is also the moment when Paris falls. The characters often stand in for their geopolitical nation states or whatever, right? That to some extent, Rick's disappointment and heartbreak is also the heartbreak, I imagine. I don't know what it was like to be in the US in the 1940 and watch Paris fall, but the sense of like, oh my God, here it goes again. Mm. We're going to be dragged into Europe. Why couldn't Europe take care of its own problems and so on, right? This sense that it is about the US and France aligning themselves and France is redeemed as well to some extent. Yeah. I mean, to return to Sam again, on this reading, the fact that Sam is just a conduit for white people to have their white people problems and fight their white people battles and just the scroll on which the grand historical narrative of Mm. white people is written is mirrored in many ways by the fact that this takes place in North Africa. Mm -hmm. The North Africans are not characters any more than really Sam is a character in the story. They're just the mise-en-scene for, again, white people to have their white Mm -hmm. people problems. I'm not sure that the colonial setting of this would have been read in 1942, the way we can now read this colonial setting for precisely the reasons you were just drawing out, Lee. In a sense, this is the colonial situation, being intermediaries for Northern European and ex-European nations to have commerce in both the literal and the metaphorical sense with one another. Mm-hmm. And other than that, there is absolutely no concern. You're rightly, except for the odd hookah placed here and there, there's really no reference to the Casablanca culture, to the culture of North Africa. Okay, so the hookah and the fez, <laughs> that, that's, those are the only- And the usual suspects. Usual suspects. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, as an aside, did you notice that all of the men who were rounded up as the usual suspects have suits and hats on? <laughs> Although huh. there, there is the reference to Rick also running guns for Ethiopia. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. true. He participated in an anti-colonial struggle as well. But I think you're right. To some extent, what Casablanca and what the colony does in this film is it allows the staging of a scene where you could have a French, American, a German SS officer all interact because to some extent they're out of the bounds of the actual conflict, right? This is a no man's land of sort. But for it to be read as a no man's land, you have to forget about the people who are there. And they're pretty much absent. It's really only the scenes, the street scenes going to and from Rick's Cafe that you see anyone who's not European or American and that the film stays within Rick's Cafe. Rick's American Cafe, which oddly serves only caviar as far as food showing up in the film. (laughs) And lots of alcohol. (laughs) An entirely sort of displaced European space on African soil. Yeah, Sam also, by the way, is one of the very few characters who is a true expat and not a refugee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because even Rick is a refugee of sorts. He had to flee the United States for Mm -hmm. unknown reasons, and then he had to flee Paris because the Nazis came in. So you're right. Sam is really an expat. I want to point out, since we're talking about the character of Sam, the actor, Dooley Wilson, is actually not a piano player. He was a drummer. Really? And so he's not actually playing the piano. 
And almost until the end, the director wanted to cut Dooley Wilson's voice out of the singing and overdub it with another voice. And so the very thing that we're pointing out that sort of brings Rick and Ilza together and also brings memories back and transforms their relationship, the director almost effaced Dooley Wilson's role in all of that. Do you guys know that Ronald Reagan was supposed to be cast in this film, but he got called off to war and that's why he wasn't in this film? He was supposed to be Rick? Yes. Whoa. That'd be a very completely different movie. (laughs) Yeah. That would be completely different movie. Yeah. Although I'd have to admit, I don't think I've actually seen any Ronald Reagan movies. Yeah. Other than like the whole 80s. (laughs) 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 Yeah. He did that series of tragedies known as the presidency. talking at the beginning about reasons why you'd watch this film or reasons why you'd teach this film. And one of the other reasons that occurs to me is I feel like in watching this film, I'm watching the ground floor of a creation of a certain kind of archetype or character. Like Rick's anti-hero seems like the template that became duplicated in anti-heroes throughout the 60s, 70s, and onward of a kind of person who's reluctant, who appears to be a cynic, but is actually, as Louis says at one point in the film, a rank sentimentalist and actually Mm -hmm. has the right motivations. They just need the right push to push them out of their cynical place. So that's one of the other things I think in watching a film like this, you feel like you're watching film history being made, not just that it's an important film, but that it would lay out the terms in which other characters would be molded. Yeah, he really is an archetype, especially I think now we see more of this figure on prestige television than we do in films anymore. But for many, many years in the 80s and 90s, this was, you know, the Han Solos, Mm -hmm. the Mad Max. Yeah, Mad Max. The character, Kevin, his name, Waterworld. Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner. I don't think I saw Waterworld. (laughs) Don't see it. Yeah, don't see it. There seems to be one difference, though, between Rick and Han Solo characters like that, in that Rick is marked from the beginning as having been a heroic hero, not an anti-hero, but an out-and-out hero. There is a list of all of the resistance fights that he was always on the good side in the Spanish Civil War and the Ethiopian conflict and so on. Every time he's on the good side doing the good, and then he withdraws. And then through a transformation, he comes back to being a kind of, I think, at first reluctant and then no longer reluctant hero. And so I think there is a difference in that he's already a hero, then he's not, then he is. But he's a peculiar hero, even in his heroic moments, right? I mean, ultimately, Rick is the one who asks the question to Victor, is it worth it? Do you ever wonder if it's worth it, what we're fighting for? Right. And Victor is the hero's hero. Right. Victor is the one who says, you might as well ask why I breathe. If we stop mm-hmm. breathing, we'll die. If we stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. So Victor understands this world historical import of his role, whereas Rick just seems to not. And by the way, speaking of a MacGuffin, the fact that the Nazis didn't shoot Victor on sight, <laughs> yeah, right. it's the strangest aspect of this movie that, you know, now suddenly the Nazis have tremendous respect for law and that this is unoccupied France means they have to respect the French authorities. Also, Victor's past is not as detailed as Rick's is. So we know generally before the war, he was some resistance guy in some conflict somewhere, but we don't have any of the details for that. And so in a way, I think that allows him to be the hero's hero. He has no past in a way, or his past is vague, whereas Rick is a hero with a past. Which makes me think that Rick is not really a hero or an anti-hero. I mean, one of the things that you guys have both mentioned already is that the figures that are the figures of the resistance and the figures of fascism are caricatures in many ways, right? Like, why are the Nazis paying attention to the letters signed by Charles de Gaulle? You know, why does the resistance seem so peculiar and pure in its ideological portrayals? They're not really the story here. They're not the actually interesting characters. The actually interesting characters are the grifters, the bureaucrats, the saloon owners, the musicians, the gamblers. So, yeah, 
yeah, I think Rick falls in that second category of characters instead of the kind of caricatures of the supposed protagonists and antagonists. Yeah, can we talk about Louis Renault a little bit? Yeah, my favorite bureaucrat. <laughs> He's the person that Rick walks off with at the end, at the be- beginning of a beautiful friendship. And as Rick, our Rick mentioned earlier, he smashes the Vichy brand water bottle. But the strange thing about him is that throughout the movie, we're given no sign that he's anything other than a bureaucrat. In fact, a fairly right. corrupt and lecherous one at that. In fact, mm-hmm. Rick's one intervention before the end of the film is he saves this young Bulgarian woman from having to sleep with Louis by using the rigged roulette table to get her the necessary money. There's nothing in the film that ever suggests that he's ever going to do anything other than be a corrupt bureaucrat. But he ends up being, well, first of all, the person that constantly suspects that Rick might be more than what he claims, that Rick might have more of a political commitment than he pretends to have. He's also the person that constantly points out that Rick doesn't drink with any guests at the cafe, which means he doesn't reveal himself to anyone. Right. And is constantly looking to see what's beyond the surface in Rick. So the only hint we get that might be something more to Louis is the fact that he thinks there's something more to Rick. Mm. It seems to me that the only way to understand his shift at the end is that once Rick acts politically and aligns himself with the resistance, Louis is like, okay, I can do this too now. That's the only way I can understand it being something other than a fairly mysterious last minute, uh, not heel turn. What's the opposite of a heel turn? A hero turn at the last minute. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing, though, about Louis is he does seem to be insistent on some kind of administrative or bureaucratic distinction between Vichy France and unoccupied France. He Mm -hmm. seems to want to enforce that administrative difference, which seems to me at least to indicate that he is opposed to the Nazi occupation of France and that he wants to insist on this is unoccupied France. And from there, then, he can move into something like a resistance. Yeah, I don't know if I'm buying this story. It seems to me that one of the reasons (laughs) that Louis wants to insist on it being unoccupied France and not Vichy France is because the looser and vaguer the conditions on the ground in Casablanca are, the easier his corruption can be, the better he can be a corrupt bureaucrat. Louis knew all along what it took Rick the whole film to learn, namely that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. I don't think that we get a sense that he's deciding to commit himself in some ideological, political way at the end of the film. I think that he's just been playing a grifter game just like he's been playing his whole life and he understands that all of these people and all of their stories don't amount to a hill of beans. He just needs to get his next paycheck or his next payoff or his next, unfortunately, woman victim. Though he does say when Rick and he wager about whether Victor Laszlo is going to escape or not, Rick suggests 20,000 francs, and Louis says, make it 10, because after all, I'm just a poor, corrupt official. So there is a recognition on his own part that he's corrupt. He also admits his lechery openly. So that puts him in an interesting position that, to go back to the necessity issue, is he corrupt because of some kind of necessity, given where he is, given the Nazi occupation of France, and he's an upper-middle-level bureaucrat in the whole grand scheme of things, and the rest of this seems to come out of a certain kind of necessity, given that context. That scene that you mentioned where they wager whether or not Victor is going to return or be caught or whatever it is, Mm. that to me is so illustrative of who these characters are. Just wagering on these things that are, for the heroes and the villains in the film, really important issues that actually amount to a hill of beans. And for them, it's just a wager, right? Louis, of course, also the one that is so comfortable in his chameleon role as a corrupt bureaucrat that when they stage the raid on Rick's cafe, he's the one that walks in and, of course, says, I'm shocked, shocked to learn that there's gambling going on in this establishment as he's being paid (laughs) gambling winnings from that evening. Yeah. You know, he might be withdrawn from the world in a way that Rick also is. 
but I think for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Rick is withdrawn because his heart was broken. Louis seems to be with- withdrawn because he can grift better in Casablanca as a upper middle level manager than he could if he were somewhere in France. Yeah. And those reasons, the different reasons that Rick and Louis have in the end, don't really matter because they just form the beginning of a beautiful yeah. friendship. I also get a sense from Louis that he's waiting for a time when resistance could be meaningful. Mm. When Victor Lasso's story is told, it'll be just a footnote. He right. managed to escape Casablanca. People like Rick and Louis won't even really mention, but their actions made possible this kind of footnote escape. So we're seeing, it goes back to the whole Hill of Beans thing, right? To some extent, Rick and Louis recognize that they have a part to play, but it's a small part. Right. And part of their role is to make sure that the other people get to where they need to be to play their much bigger role. There's a certain way in which Victor Laszlo is like, he's so pure, he's so kind of like larger than life, but he's also boring. Yeah. Back to this is the story of the usual suspects of the people who are more interesting because they're corrupt. He just shows up and he's more like a thing that needs to be moved from point A to point B than an actual character because he doesn't have any (laughs) conflict. He knows what the right thing to do is and he's just going to do it. There are only obstacles for him, not choices. Right. And in a way, if he's going to be a footnote when the history is written, then he also doesn't matter a hill of beans. Okay, so he gets to the Americas, which I think is an interesting moment. At the beginning of the film, they talk about the refugees trying to get to the Americas for freedom, not the United States. And the Mm -hmm. word America is not used to refer to the United States. But okay, so he gets to the Americas. What is he doing there? After the war, does he go back? And now does he run for president in his country? I can't imagine any of that. I imagine he gets to the U.S. and probably opens a shop. Yeah. (laughs) And then he's no longer a hero. I agree. He is so boring. (laughs) Not that the actor's bad. I think there's something empty about his heroism. Empty in the sense, not that it's an empty gesture, but it's not filled in. It's not given flesh. And so, in a sense, we're just told, here's the pure hero, and then here are a bunch of complicated people. And in relation to the complications of Rick and Louis and even Ilza, and then all the usual suspects and the side characters, and we haven't even spoken about them, they are all filled in with some kind of interesting detail, and yet he, the hero hero, is never filled in. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. One of the difficulties in talking about a movie like Casablanca is that it is incredibly complex visually. It's complex in its plot. There are a lot of complex characters, as we've been teasing out through all of this conversation. So, Lee, are there any aspects of this film that you think are interesting and important that we haven't been able to talk about yet? This is not so much an aspect of the film, but one thing that I didn't mention in this conversation that I do want to make note of on the record is that as I've gotten older, I have found Ilsa, the character of Ilsa, to be Although beautiful, a deeply unlikable Mm. character. I think it is about growing up as a woman and seeing just how passive she is and how even in her most dramatic moves, like when she pulls a gun on Rick, that she's unable to discharge her own will in action and that she is completely happy just being the sort of tragic side character of the stories of great men. So she is gorgeous. Ingrid Bergman is wonderful in this role, but I find Ilsa deeply unlikable. Character. And and there's that moment where she says, you'll have to do the thinking for both of us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the only thing that for me, challenges that a little bit is that I wonder if her falling back in love with Rick 
is not a conceit on her part in order to get the transit letters for Victor, Mm -hmm. that she's doing this because she loves Victor and she wants at least him to get out of Casablanca. In order for that to happen, she has to hitch her wagon to Rick's train, and she does that by feigning love. Mm. I'm not saying that you know makes her a super agent in all of this, but it is, to my mind, a moment where she's not entirely passive. Mm -hmm. Jason, what about you? I think one of the things is interesting in the film's last couple exchanges with Rick and Ilsa, Rick and Victor, where they constantly go back and forth about who's getting the letters for who and who has the real love and passion. Those scenes bring up something that I was thinking about, and that is this line that's attributed to Lacan that Zizek brings up, that animals can lie, but only human beings can pretend to lie, can do a sort of second level lie. Mm However you read those different scenes, there seems to be a sense in which someone, and maybe it's Ilsa, maybe it's also Rick, are pretending to pretend. The way in which you watch the end of the film and watch those scenes together, you're constantly going back and forth in terms of who is telling the truth and who is pretending to pretend, who is claiming something to get something they want, and who is actually confessing their true feelings. And I think the film sets up different interpretive possibilities in terms of how you understand who was telling the truth and who was faking in the guise of telling the truth. Yeah. What about you, Rick? I love all of the side characters that are on (laughs) the outskirts of all of this. For example, Signor Ferrari, who owns the Blue Parrot, I think he must be the prototype for Jabba the Hutt. (laughs) Down to the hookah smoking and so on. Signor Ugarte, who ends up getting killed in jail. And this is another moment where Louis says, we haven't decided yet whether he committed suicide or he was shot trying to escape. I love Carl, who seems like the head waiter or something like that. He sits down to have a drink with this German couple. and Oh, they're my absolute favorite, the ones that are learning English. They're very proud that they've learned English (laughs) and their conversation in English goes like this. Sweetness heart? Yes, my love. What watch? (laughs) Ten watch. Oh, such much. I love that. But Carl is great. He's also part of the resistance. He goes to the resistance meetings. The bartender, Sasha, in love with a woman that Rick obviously had a past with, keeps saying, but you know, Ivan, I love you. And she asks, oh, could you give me this? Yes, I can, because you know, I love you. So he's an interesting character. I just love these characters that circle around Casablanca and give it this very cosmopolitan feel that it has. Well, speaking of the cafe, our bartender is giving us last call. She says that of all the hotel bars and all the towns (laughs) in all the world, she wants us out of hers. So... (laughs) Before we go, I just want to remind our listeners that you can support this podcast by visiting our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and sign up for one of our patron levels there. It really does help us out a lot and we appreciate hearing from you. So I don't know about you guys, but I've got these papers signed by Charles de Gaulle himself. (laughs) And I see the plane to Lisbon landing just now. So I guess we better take off. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Nice. Thank you.